Hello, and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, October 5th, 2023, the only podcast that separates the facts from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Members of the House GOP float the idea of Trump as House Speaker. Pakistani officials order illegal immigrants, including 1.7 million Afghans, to leave the country. North Korea slams the U.S. for labeling Pyongyang as a, quote, persistent threat. Regional Russian officials claim Ukraine has used cluster munitions. Rishi Sunak cancels a major U.K. rail link. Nancy Pelosi is asked to vacate her private capital office space by the interim House Speaker. The U.S. Department of Justice charges members of China's private sector over fentanyl. The U.S. and Switzerland team up to donate $8.4 million to Brazil's Amazon Rainforest Fund. While over 100 dolphins perish in the Amazon's sweltering waters. And 75,000 workers strike at Kaiser Permanente health centers across the U.S. In our top story, Republicans voice support for Trump as next speaker. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill, Yahoo News, New York Post, Fox News, NBC, and The Wall Street Journal. Following the ousting of former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Representative Troy Neal's Republican of Texas announced late Tuesday that he would look to nominate former U.S. President Donald Trump to be the next Speaker of the House. While Neal's wasn't one of the eight Republicans who voted to remove McCarthy, He announced on X that he would nominate Trump as McCarthy isn't running for the speakership again. All House Democrats joined the eight conservative Republicans to oust McCarthy. Other Republicans, including Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gaetz, have voiced their support for Trump to become speaker. Ohio Representative Jim Jordan also said Trump would be great, although he announced his intent to run for the speakership. Speaking to reporters outside a New York City courtroom, Trump said he had received many calls about becoming speaker. He added that he would help Republicans in any way he can, but that his sole focus is being president. While every House speaker in U.S. history has been a member of the lower chamber, the Constitution doesn't place any such requirements. However, despite having support from the right wing of his party, some are skeptical that Trump could muster 218 votes to become speaker. In addition to Representative Jordan, Louisiana Representative Steve Scalise and Oklahoma Representative Kevin Hearn also announced their bids for the role on Wednesday. Other potential contenders include Minnesota Representative Tom Emmer and Texas Representative Chip Roy. Thank you, Eric. Here on the Verity Podcast, we like to lay out the facts for each story, and then we start off with our narrative spins. Our first round of spins are going to begin with a pro-Trump narrative, and it's brought to us by InfoWars. There's no better choice for House Speaker than Trump, and many House Republicans are already coming to his support. While Trump's primary mission is to retake the White House, he could serve as Speaker in the meantime, which would allow him to restore order and unity in the House. The anti-Trump narrative comes from MSNBC. While the House was able to oust Kevin McCarthy from his role, largely thanks to Democrats, it won't be able to secure Trump the Speakership. Trump is being indicted for multiple crimes, and House rules disqualify people in his situation from becoming Speaker. Besides, he doesn't have enough GOP support to win the vote. And from time to time, we get nerd narratives from our friends in the Metaculous Prediction community. They've got an opinion on this story, and they think that there's a 58% chance that Steve Scalise will be elected to replace Kevin McCarthy as the House Speaker. 
Yeah, I, I heard about this uh, floating around the internet today, and there's a, a line in the, the rules for being House Speaker that if you're ever indicted for a felony while you're House Speaker, you're supposed to step down. Well, I mean, I, I thought maybe uh, the reason he's declining the offer or the notion of becoming Speaker is because of the dress code. You think he's got something against the dress code? I think he does. I think I think his hair violates that every time he enters the <sighs> chamber. I told you I've, I told you I, I shook his hand, right? I stood like behind him from about about like 10, 15 feet behind him and like like stared at his head. And that's what it looks like. <laughs> no. He was being silhouetted in the sun when I was yeah. watching him, you know, and uh, you could kind of see his scalp outlined with this just kind of cotton candy oh, yeah. wave thing swirled up over the top of his aged freckled scalp. Was this before or after you guys teed off? I I can't remember. You told me the story before. This was about three holes in and he was, and I caught a glimpse of it because he was trying to kick his ball back into the fairway. Oh, gotcha. And that's, and I was like, I was like, Don, Don, knock that crap off. And I called him on his, I called him on his, his nonsense. Yes. And did he, he didn't hear me. He didn't listen. He acted like I didn't say anything. Just kicked it back in the fairway and kept playing. Well, did he have a box of documents on his golf cart? And this was before that. This was before all of that. Oh, I got you. Although he, although he did out of his ex-wife's coffin in tow. <laughs> I think he was looking for a good spot to bury her. <laughs> Pakistani officials order illegal immigrants, including 1.7 million Afghans, to leave the country. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, Voice of America, CNN, Associated Press, and NDTV. On Tuesday, Pakistan ordered all undocumented immigrants, including about 1.73 million Afghans, to leave the country by November 1st or face extradition. Claiming to possess, quote, evidence of the assertion, Pakistan Interior Minister Sarfraz Bukhti said 14 of the 24 suicide bombings in the country to have taken place this year were carried out, quote, by Afghan nationals. In a stern warning to any immigrants who should fail to leave before the deadline, Bukhti stated, All our state law enforcement agencies will unleash an operation with full throttle to deport them. Pakistan's caretaker government also reportedly plans to initiate DNA testing to detect illegal immigrants who have allegedly conspired with locals over the creation of fake national identity cards. Around 2.4 million of the 4.4 million Afghans residing in Pakistan have refugee status, making them eligible for government identity cards, thereby allowing them to access banking services and send their children to school. Meanwhile, Afghanistan's embassy in Islamabad termed the move, quote, harassment of Afghan refugees. It further said that over 1,000 Afghans have been detained recently, despite having a legal right to be in Pakistan. Adam, thank you for those facts. We begin our round of spins with Narrative A coming from Dawn.com. The crackdown on undocumented immigrants, primarily Afghans, stems from a dramatic surge of terrorist attacks in Pakistan in recent months, suspected to be directed from militant sanctuaries in Afghanistan. The country has in this period witnessed the largest influx of Afghan refugees since the Soviet invasion in 1979. Islamabad's latest move will prevent militants from using Pakistani soil to train fighters and cripple law and order. The spin's going to continue with a narrative B by the Express Tribune. It is inhumane of Pakistan to demand passports and visas for entry from Afghans who have for decades crossed the border using only their national identity cards. 
Instead of fighting the Islamic State's militants who freely operate along the border and have routinely carried out attacks in Pakistan, Islamabad is evicting innocent people who have fled the Taliban's atrocities back home. This marathon round of spins continues with Narrative C coming from GEO. Islamabad may be justified in ordering illegal immigrants to leave the country under national security considerations. However, it should refrain from forcibly evicting the displaced. The authorities must realize that people fleeing persecution often lack necessary documents and permissions, so they must reevaluate how to go about this process. And the nerds of Metaculus are going to wrap up this spin. They think that there's an 82% chance that Pakistan will recognize the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan before 2030. And that's according to the Metaculus prediction community. Do you think they have exit interviews when they're asked to leave the country? I'm sure they ask, you know, what was your opinion of Pakistan while you were here? How would you rate us on a scale of one to 10? You know? Yeah. And how, do, how did you hear about us? <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's, that's, that's first. Uh, you were in walking distance. How about that? Right, right. <laughs> North Korea slams the U.S. for labeling it a persistent threat. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Iran International. The Straits Times, Washington Post, Al Jazeera, and Associated Press. North Korea on Wednesday condemned the U.S. Department of Defense's Counter Weapons of Mass Destruction, or WMD strategy paper, which describes Pyongyang as a persistent threat. Last week, the Pentagon released the 2023 version of its strategy for countering weapons of mass destruction, which identifies China as a, quote, pacing challenge and Russia as an acute threat with North Korea and Iran being labeled, quote, persistent threats as they continue to further pursue and develop WMD. North Korea's defense ministry rejected the designation and, for its part, accused the U.S. of stepping up its nuclear threats, pointing to joint military exercises with South Korea and the deployment of a strategic nuclear submarine. It also criticized Russia and China's classification as a, quote, political provocation claiming in its statement that Washington, quote, just revealed its dangerous intention to threaten the North and other nations, Pyongyang added that the North's military will respond to the U.S. military strategy with the most overwhelming and sustained response strategy. Last week, the Supreme People's Assembly, North Korea's parliament, approved a constitutional amendment enshrining the country's nuclear policy in the Constitution. Leader Kim Jong-un said the North must, quote, accelerate the modernization of nuclear weapons to counter what he called threats from the U.S. and South Korea. On Wednesday, South Korea's defense ministry said that the constitutional amendment would further increase the North's intentional isolation and the suffering of its people, and also warned Pyongyang that any move to launch nuclear weapons would mean the end of North Korea's government. Eric, thank you for the facts. We're going to start our spins with an establishment critical narrative provided by Yonhap News Agency. With its updated WMD counter strategy, the U.S. is turning reality upside down, as it is Washington and its military industrial complex that pose the greatest threat to the world. The U.S. is the world's largest WMD armed state and the only one that has ever used nuclear weapons. To justify its policy of global military hegemony, it protects the threat it poses itself onto declared enemies. This explains the need for North Korea to increase its nuclear arsenal and diversify its nuclear strike capability. 
Korea Times provides us the pro-establishment narrative. Pyongyang not only rejects denuclearization, but has also passed a law allowing the use of nuclear weapons as an offensive war option. Meanwhile, Pyongyang is developing and stationing nuclear capabilities that could reach regional U.S. allies as well as the U.S. itself. Moreover, the DPRK's chemical and biological arsenal poses a constant threat to any nation the regime considers an enemy. The Kim regime represents an incalculable danger, and the U.S. is right to adapt to this persistent threat. And we're going to wrap it up with a nerd narrative that says there's a 31% chance that North Korea will possess enough fissile material to produce at least 100 warheads before 2024, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Now, Eric, I know that that's a typo. It should be missile material. But I got a feeling that they're, uh, they, might, they might be onto something. I bet you fissile is that magic candy ingredient that makes the warhead sour candies. I think North Korea is planning some sort of crazy candy takeover. You know what? I bet you are absolutely correct. Wow. Have you been talking to Brian Williams again? I knew it. I knew it. We are on it. We're on it. They're, be careful, North Korea. You, you better have some straight up good warheads. They better be. Coming out. Those better be good warheads. And tasty. Regional Russian officials claim Ukraine has used cluster munitions. And here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, Reuters, Guardian, Arms Control Association, and Independent. Alexander Bogomaz, governor of the Russian Bryansk region bordering Ukraine, claimed on Wednesday that Ukraine has used cluster munitions in four attacks on the region. He said several homes and outbuildings were damaged, but there were no reports of casualties at this stage. Bogomaz also alleged the weapons were used in an attack on his region a day earlier, again stating that several buildings were damaged, but there were no reports of injuries. Despite condemnation from human rights groups, U.S. President Joe Biden approved the transfer of cluster munitions, which scatter bomblets that may continue to be dangerous for years after they're used, to Ukraine in July. Though a difficult decision, Biden said it was necessary as Ukraine was running out of regular artillery shells. The weapons have been used by both Russia and Ukraine in the war. As a condition for their delivery to Ukraine, the country provided the U.S. with a number of assurances that included pledging not to use the weapons in urban areas and only in fields where there was a concentration of Russian military. Elsewhere, Russia's defense ministry said on Wednesday that its air defenses had shot down 31 nighttime drones over the country's border regions, seemingly the largest Ukrainian attack of its kind since the start of the war. The defense ministry also said it detected and shot down a Ukrainian anti-ship Neptune missile that was headed for Crimea on Tuesday evening. Adam just presented the facts, and our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Politico. The decision to arm Ukraine with cluster munitions was difficult, but one that was necessary given its shortages of regular ammunition effectively allowing Russia to take more Ukrainian land and subjugate more of its citizens simply because the country is not sufficiently armed is an unacceptable prospect. And we're going to counter that with an establishment-critical narrative provided by The Hill. When Russia was found to have used cluster munitions, the political and media establishment was up in arms over the devastation the weapons inflicted on civilians. We should apply the same moral standard and condemn the use of cluster munitions anytime they're used. 
And the nerds from Metaculus say there's a 32% chance that the next Russian leader will disapprove of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Is that how Putin plans on getting out of this? I think he's going to pretend that he is a, that he has a twin, but he's like a good twin. And he's going to be like, oh, no, Vladimir was so wrong in this. We will fix everything. Bad Vladimir. Vlad, no, the Vladimir that's in office right now is like the uh, 16th generation copy of copy. You, know, like you think that's what it is? So we're gonna get we're gonna get the original yeah. back in, right? And the it's gonna be like, I'm sorry, my copy messed up everything. Yeah, my carbon, carbon, and carbon, and carbon of the carbon copy. You like my Putin impersonation? I think it's getting better. It is getting better. It's sounding less and less like the uh, the Count from Sesame Street, and more and more like Vladimir Putin. News coming from the United Kingdom Tory conference as Prime Minister Sunak cancels a major rail link. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Independent, Evening Standard, Financial Times, iNews UK, and YouGov. Speaking at the Conservative Party conference on Wednesday, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced that the government would cancel the Birmingham to Manchester leg of the country's HS2 high-speed train project. While confirming that the London-Houston to Birmingham leg would be completed, Sunak stated that he would be ending the, quote, long-running saga, as the facts have changed, concerning the price of the project. The Prime Minister revealed that the cost of the HS2 rail link had more than doubled while claiming that the £36 billion, or $43.8 billion, saved from cancelling the route would be reinvested into projects in the north of England that would make a real difference. Sunak consequently announced the Network North program, which will see further investment into existing transport systems. HS2 trains are still intended to run between Manchester and Birmingham, but on pre-existing slower rail lines. The speech also included Sunak's intention for a House of Commons vote intended to raise the age of smoking by one year every year, a reform of secondary school education to form a, quote, advanced British standard, and a pledge to get the UK to net zero by the year 2050. The latest YouGov Times voting intention poll places the Conservative Party at 24% support, compared to 45% support for the Labour Party. Furthermore, 30% of those questioned claim that Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer would make a better prime minister, compared to 22% in support of Sunak. Eric, thanks for the facts. The spins are going to start with a right narrative provided by The Telegraph. Sunak is more than aware of his party's decline in the polls and is now keen to focus on long-term decision-making to regain the public's trust. While essential long-term reforms to various public institutions are often synonymous with failure in the UK political sphere, predominantly down to a lack of will by politicians to withstand short-term criticism to achieve their goals, Sunak must pursue what he knows to be correct. The left narrative comes from the mirror. The scrapping of the HS2 link between Birmingham and Manchester is a historic betrayal of the North and the perfect demonstration of incompetency within the Tory party. While Sunak may purport to prioritize the nation's long-term health over short-term gains, this decision achieves the exact opposite as Sunak looks to shore up support ahead of next year's election, a clear indication of where his priorities truly lie. And the nerds have an opinion. They think that there's a 77% chance that the Labour Party, led by Sir Keir Starmer, will form the first government after the next UK general election. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. The interim House Speaker instructs Pelosi to vacate her Capitol office. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Business Insider, Fox News, Daily Wire, and BBC News. U.S. Representative Patrick McHenry, the Republican from North Carolina, who is temporarily in charge of the House following the vote to vacate Kevin McCarthy's speakership on Tuesday, has instructed former Speaker Nancy Pelosi to vacate her office in the Capitol building. Offices such as Pelosi's, known as hideaways, are private, unlisted rooms used by the most senior-level officials in Congress and traditionally reserved for senators. McHenry's office said the room would be rekeyed Wednesday. Pelosi, currently in California to attend the funeral of the late Senator Dianne Feinstein, said she wouldn't be able to move her personal effects. According to one of her spokesmen, her belongings were moved out Tuesday with help from the staff of House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, the Democrat from New York. House Republican leadership similarly instructed Representative Steny Hoyer, the Democrat from Maryland, to leave his Capitol hideaway. Though a Republican aide for the House Administration Committee, which oversees office spaces, told CNN this was not a request made by the committee. According to McCarthy, in January, Pelosi encouraged him to compromise with a small group of Republicans who were preventing him from securing the speakership, including allowing a single member to file a motion to vacate, which is how McCarthy was eventually removed. He also claims that Pelosi promised to back him if such a motion was ever brought to the floor. While Pelosi wasn't present on Tuesday's vote, she said she would have voted against him. Adam, thanks for those facts. Our first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from The Guardian. Not only did McHenry break the long-held tradition and shared courtesy of retaining Pelosi's office for the former speaker, but he did so on a day that the congresswoman was out of town mourning the death of a colleague. The GOP may enjoy petty disputes within its own party, but they shouldn't let this overflow into the personal lives of politicians on the other side. And Democratic narratives are usually followed up by Republican narratives. We've got one here provided by PJ Media. If Pelosi wants to talk about tradition, hideaway offices are traditionally given to a select number of high-level officials, which Pelosi no longer is. It's true that McHenry needs to get to work, which is why he removed an irrelevant politician from an office meant to be used by relevant leaders. The United States bring charges over a People's Republic of China fentanyl distribution. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Voice of America, BBC News, Reuters, CNA, and CBS. On Tuesday, the U.S. Department of Justice, or DOJ, charged eight Chinese companies and 12 execs for their alleged role in the production and trafficking of fentanyl into the United States. As part of eight separate indictments, the DOJ alleges the accused of producing fentanyl and methamphetamine, supplying precursor chemicals, and distributing synthetic opioids. Speaking at a news conference, Attorney General Merrick Garland said the global fentanyl supply chain often starts in China. In 2022, fentanyl was linked to a record 109,680,000 deaths in the U.S. Garland further claimed the U.S. knows, quote, who is responsible for poisoning the American people and revealed the Chinese government didn't work with the U.S. on these investigations. These charges come at the same time the U.S. Department of the Treasury has sanctioned 28 individuals and entities involved in the trafficking of illicit drugs, accusing the predominantly China-based network of synthesizing thousands of kilograms of fentanyl, methamphetamine, and, and MDMA, known commonly as ecstasy, precursors. Beijing's foreign ministry has responded by claiming China firmly opposed the sanctions, which it described as a severe infringement of the lawful rights and interests of those targeted. 
Meanwhile, Garland and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas are scheduled to travel to Mexico for discussions about the fentanyl epidemic, with law enforcement having already seized 55 million pills and 9,000 pounds of powder containing fentanyl this year. Thank you, Eric. National Review has an anti-China narrative. Because of China, opioids are making their way into the biggest cities and the smallest towns throughout the U.S., and they're costing innocent lives. Obviously, the U.S. has to better secure its southern border, but also Beijing must be prohibited from preventing such deadly chemicals from reaching North America. China Daily provides the pro-China narrative. Blaming China is the easy option, but the U.S. should look within. While Washington is pointing fingers at Beijing, the U.S. homemade fentanyl crisis is growing due to the influence of Big Pharma and other money-driven interests. The U.S. should take care of its own business and leave the PRC out of this discussion. And the Metaculous Prediction community have an opinion. They think that there's a 19% chance of a U.S.-China war before 2035. You know, here's the dilemma I think that's being created here is that fentanyl was, I'm not sure, but invented in the U.S. by a company. They created it here for a certain amount of time. When it got popular, they needed to mass produce it, so they sent it to China to get it produced overseas, right? Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that probably what happened? Probably, but no matter how it happened, it's still a hard pill to swallow. (laughs) There you go. The U.S. and Switzerland donate $8.4 million to Brazil's Amazon Fund. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters. Today, Fola Sainte Paulo, Business Standard, and Vox. The U.S. and Switzerland have donated $8.4 million to Brazil's Amazon Fund to preserve the world's largest tropical rainforest. The Brazilian National Development Bank, or the BNDES, said on Tuesday. The bank said Switzerland contributed $5.4 million and the U.S. $3 million. The Amazon Fund supports the prevention, monitoring, and combat of deforestation and foresters' sustainable development in the rainforest region. Since its creation in 2008, it has funded 102 projects, investing $340 million, BNDES said. Germany, the U.S., the U.K., the EU, and Switzerland together pledged $655 million to the fund. However, to date, not all of them have paid, while some have not yet paid the full amounts they pledged. In April, President Joe Biden had said he would seek congressional approval to send $500 million over the next five years to the Amazon fund. However, officials were pessimistic, especially considering the context of a Republican-controlled House. Stopping deforestation in the Amazon is part of Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva's transformative plan to reclaim leadership over climate change measures. More than 4 million hectares, a Switzerland-sized area of forests, vanished from the tropics in 2022 in parts of the world like Brazil and Central Africa. Data from the University of Maryland shows, alarmingly, this loss was 10% greater than in 2021. Thank you, Adam, for those facts. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from The Guardian. Amazon countries need the world's help to curb deforestation. Besides financial incentives like funds and debt relief, they must also be assisted in fields such as law enforcement and resource conservation. At a time when the world is rapidly facing destruction, 
it would be foolhardy to leave these nations to fend for themselves. And there's a narrative B provided by Vox. Over the years, many countries and companies have publicly committed to protecting the world's tropical lungs. Evidently, pledges alone are ineffective, as there is no accountability. The risks to livelihoods, profitability, and demographics sap them of all political will. As long as it remains more profitable to cut down trees than to protect them, words are meaningless. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 26% chance that Brazil will reach net zero deforestation before 2031. Over 100 dolphin deaths in the Amazon River are tied to drought heat. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Time, Al Jazeera, Daily Mail, Reuters, and USA Today. The Brazilian government-funded Mamiroa Institute has blamed the death of over 100 dolphins in the Brazilian Amazon rainforest on the historic drought and record-high water temperatures in the Tefe Lake region. The carcasses of 120 river dolphins, which could represent up to 10% of the population, have been beached on the lakeside since last week. Thousands of fish have also reportedly died in the area where temperatures have exceeded 102 degrees Fahrenheit or 39 degrees Celsius. Amazon river dolphins are among a handful of freshwater dolphin species left in the world, with both pink and gray dolphins, locally known as Boto and Tusuxi, respectively, being on the International Union for Conservation of Nature's Red List of Threatened Species. Meanwhile, Brazil's Chico Mendes Institute for Biodiversity Conservation has deployed veterinarians and aquatic mammal experts to rescue the remaining dolphins. However, they will only be moved to cooler river waters after researchers rule out a bacterial cause of death. While autopsies are being conducted on the carcasses to determine if severe drought and heat are to blame for the high mortality, the extent and role of global warming in the current Amazon drought is unclear. Other factors such as El Nino are also contributing. The drought in the Brazilian Amazon rainforest, which could affect nearly 500,000 people by the end of 2023, has allegedly stopped many residents and natives from accessing essential supplies as low river levels affect fishing and transportation. Thank you, Eric. We're going to start the spins with a narrative A provided by Salon. While the cause of this extreme event has yet to be determined, the death of at least 120 dolphins in the Amazon is undoubtedly connected to a historic drought and jacuzzi level searing temperatures in the Tefe Lake. This tragedy must serve as a warning that climate change threatens the survival of humans and many other intelligent mammals. Narrative B comes from Financial Times. It's easy to dismiss any extreme weather event as a consequence of climate change, but in reality, they're usually influenced by a myriad of factors that have nothing to do with global warming. More research is needed before establishing any direct causal link between the two. And the nerds think that there's a 90% chance that there will be at least 2% Celsius of global warming by the year 2100. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. 7,500 Kaiser Permanente workers go on strike across the United States. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, ABC News, NBC, NPR Online News, and CNN. More than 75,000 unionized employees at Kaiser Permanente went on strike Wednesday at healthcare facilities in five states, amid a dispute between labor negotiators and the company over staffing levels. 
Employees in Virginia and Washington, D.C., California, Colorado, Washington, and Oregon began striking today in what will be the largest healthcare worker strike in U.S. history. The striking workers include nurses, emergency department technicians, radiology technicians, x-ray technicians, respiratory therapists, medical assistants, pharmacists, and other job functions. Kaiser Permanente is one of the largest nonprofit healthcare providers in the U.S. and serves nearly 13 million patients. The strike is driven by a staffing shortage, which workers say has worsened working conditions and led to a deterioration in the quality of patient care. According to union data, 11% of union positions at the company were vacant in April of this year. The company says it has contingency plans to ensure patients continue to receive care during the labor stoppage for its 12.7 million patients. The collective bargaining agreement for Kaiser employees represented by unions expired on September 30th without a new agreement in place. The company and labor negotiators are still in disagreement over major issues, including wages, but reportedly made headway on topics including outsourcing and subcontracting during recent talks. Adam, thank you for those facts. The first bit is a pro-establishment narrative coming from NPR Online News. While there's no question that staffing shortages and employee burnout are an issue at Kaiser Permanente, these issues are affecting the entire healthcare industry, not just this company. It is unfair to blame Kaiser for an entire sector's problem. Additionally, Kaiser already has better compensation and benefits packages than most companies. A strike was unnecessary. NBC is going to counter that with an establishment critical narrative. Kaiser management failed to adequately address workers' concerns about unsafe staffing levels. Previous negotiations have not been done in good faith, and a fair outcome has not yet been achieved. While unfortunate, a strike is necessary to improve working conditions and staffing levels, which will improve the quality of patient care. This is another example of America's simmering labor movements. Our final nerd narrative of today's podcast, coming from the Metaculous Prediction community, says that there's a 50% chance that at least 459,000 workers will go on strike as part of major work stoppages in the U.S. in 2023. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, October 5th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news. You can also download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Podcast.